The character of warfare has consistently changed over time. This is a war and it's a really, really serious thing because everything that could fire, it was firing on both sides. With technological advances moving from edged warfare to bows and gunpowder, through mechanization to more advanced technologies today, like long-range precision weapons, robotics, and autonomy. It's insane, but that proved to be the best solution. However, war remains a human endeavor with varied and profound effects felt by the soldiers on the ground. War is human. It is nasty, cut off, muddy, bad weather, bad terrain. Still what we say it is. To explore this experience of military members in the tactical fight, we spoke with combat veterans, frontline reporters, and military training experts for this episode of The Convergence, the Army's mad scientist podcast. But now we're talking about actually fighting the networks against an enemy. Through the soldier's eyes, the future of ground combat. My name is Denis Antipo. I am a former platoon leader for 81st Airborne Brigade Battalion Tactical Group. And I was a lieutenant for Russia-Ukraine war in Donbass, in eastern Ukraine, uh, in 2015-2016. Back in 2014, when the war started, I was a teacher at the university, I was a Korean language instructor. <laughs> and when uh, the war broke out, you know, I was willing to protect my motherland. And uh, because I've seen guys uh, volunteering, then I also wanted to join because our family has uh, some traditions in uh, protecting Ukrainian independence in, in World War II and uh, afterwards. And so I, I felt like obligatory thing for every Ukrainian man who is considered himself to be uh, a patriot to protect the motherland and to stand up and fight uh, the invasion and the occupation of our territory. I uh, graduated ROTC prior to war in, 2000, uh, in 2010. And but my major at ROTC was a military interpreter. We didn't feel much urge for military interpreters, and so I started training. I learned how to operate drones, uh, and there were volunteers who taught us how to do that. And uh, so I spent like six months of training, pretty much basic stuff like military tactics and, and how to use the drones in reconnaissance, air reconnaissance uh, warfare. And you know, after Six months, I was a pretty much needed professional. And in 2014, I uh, um, got some news from uh, the people I knew that the new battalion is going to be formed in 81st Airborne Brigade. I um, get uh, I got known with the commander, future commander, and uh, he said, okay, we, we need a drone operator, so let's go, <laughs> let's go and, and fight. Uh, so uh, uh, in 2015, I already was uh, uh, mobilized and after that, I became a uh, platoon leader. My name is Heydar Mirza, and uh, I've been working on the public television of Azerbaijan. And I'm author and the host of the, the program is called Radius. It's a weekly military analysis uh, program. It's about 25 minutes. And also, at the same time, I'm like um, one of the founders of uh, Caliber.az YouTube channel. Uh, before that, my experience is about 12 years in a major government think tank called Center for Strategic Studies under the present Azerbaijan and now it's uh, Azerbaijan National Relations Center. And I used to work there on regional security issues, basically. 
there was something uh, imminent feeling of something coming upon us and uh, you know the people with experience you know how the government functions how the structures function you can there's something you feel there is something you observe and sometimes you don't have direct answers to your questions but you know what's going on so uh, that was what we were observing and at the end of September this is normally time when new television season starts and uh, we were going to the former like that at that time it was different we were going to the then uh, front line to get some like new footage interviews with soldiers officers etc so we're, we we supposedly were getting ready to the new season and before leaving to the front line uh, we were given like it used to be uh, normal briefing but there were certain messages that we got uh, that were really serious and they gave ground for thoughts like I asked for, for how many days we're going and I, we were said like, go as if you will come back in a month. Normally we came back in a couple of days. So on September 24th, we were there on the front line and we started like a normal way of things, uh, taking interviews, footages, etc., thinking about the scenario we had. It was, uh, the tension was in the air because certain things were happening, uh, certain little skirmishes. And when on 26th afternoon, we saw that uh, the brigade that we were uh, stationed in, platoon by platoon, they were just leaving uh, under alarm condition. Uh, we thought that this is something planned in accordance with the, with the things that are happening on the front line, but not that much serious yet. That happened at the end. On the, at the end of the day, on September 26th, the whole brigade was empty. It was only us on the territory and a couple of like uh, guarding soldiers. Uh, we waited till the, it was like late in the night, it was 3 a.m. I think, uh, maybe even 3.30, we fell asleep. It was around six o'clock. Uh, I woke up uh, for the sound of the cannonade. And, and the second I heard it, I realized that this is not a provocation. This is not something that happened in April, 2016. This is a war, and it's a really, really serious thing because everything that could fire, it was firing on both sides, and you could hear it. It was something very, very similar to what we imagine as a frontline conventional warfare. After two decades of counterinsurgency and counterterrorism operations around the world, U.S. soldiers have become more accustomed to fighting irregular and non-conventional adversaries that lack the capability to employ long-range fires, electronic warfare, and air power, capabilities usually limited to state actors in large-scale combat operations. The presence of increased lethality, range, and variety in weapons on the battlefield across multiple domains presents a different experience and feeling for the soldier being targeted by them. My name is Nolan Peterson. I'm the senior editor for Coffee or Die magazine based here in Kyiv, Ukraine. I think that the sort of the preeminent threats have, have certainly shifted over the years. In the beginning, without a doubt, artillery, grad rocket attacks, like that area warfare concept that really comes from the Soviet mind, that was scary. And I was out there in 2014-15 when that type of warfare was being fought, and that's just I'm a pilot and I, I, I will never claim to have much, you know, combat savoir-faire, <laughs> but like it was, it was, it was very scary. And I think that, you know, that kind of combat is something with which U.S. forces, we don't have much active experience with that kind of combat. As the war has evolved into this more static trench warfare, I think that the threat is more of like targeted attacks, whether by snipers, 
and the small drones, which are, which are very prevalent on the front lines right now. My name is John Spencer. I'm the chair of urban warfare studies at the Modern War Institute. I've been studying urban operations for the last seven years. Most recently, I just returned a couple of days ago from going uh, into Azerbaijan and then into Nagorno-Karabakh and all the way up to a, a city called Susha, where a decisive battle happened that ended the second Nagorno-Karabakh war of last year. This war, of course, was multi-domain and, and everybody's quoted on the, the drones. And I, I learned, the more I learned the, the long range precision guided munitions that were used that weren't just drones, the MLRS, the Smirch, uh, some of these assets that you see this very lethal battlefield happen. But it's just imagine these special forces elements infiltrating with rucks on their back over multiple distance. And behind them, you have a basically a siege engine of engineers cutting their way through the woods. And one of the reasons, and I didn't realize this as I've watched drone footage of, of this war, and there are actually very few routes in Nagorno-Karabakh. I didn't realize that. Very few roads. So if I'm an Intel kind of search and destroy kind of person, if I'm using AI, I don't think it would be that hard to find things along these main routes. And we saw that, right? And I watched these, you know, the tanks and the troops in the open getting hit by killer drones. I didn't realize really how hard it would have been to maneuver in this theater outside that line of control, right? If you're in that line of control, you're it's basically positional warfare. You knew you were going to be under attack at all times and anything moving towards you could be attacked. The drones gave us another level of uh, basically search and destroy. But I didn't realize as a individual units and soldiers moving, how impossible it would have been to hide in this theater. But you see these soldiers using the terrain of this heavily wooded terrain. Once you got out of the line of contact, right, and you pushed, as we drove farther into Nagorno-Karabakh and towards Susha along this road they later named Victory Road, which is this amazing hardball road now, they were cutting that as they were fighting. Uh, and, and the reason they were cutting that was to get artillery assets, old school stuff, uh, closer to the, the main fight that they knew was going to happen. I'm Colonel Scott Shaw, currently serving as the G3 in First Corps, and I was the commander of the Asymmetric Warfare Group until May of 2021. From analyzing videos, we saw a lot of artillery strikes too. Artillery, cannon or rocket, is and will likely remain the, the king of battle, the most lethal system on the battlefield. What's likely to happen, and we saw that in open source videos, is the unmanned aerial system conducting reconnaissance of opposition positions and providing targeting data back, accurate targeting data, locations to the guns or rocket launchers. And when we're talking about these rocket launchers, we're, we're talking big ones. We're talking 122 to 220 millimeter multiple rocket launchers that can saturate an area of rocket fire. The way they counteract drones can be separated into in two directions. So first is like direct rifle fire and or just direct fire. Second one is uh, when they use uh, jamming devices, jamming equipment, because uh, once they jammed the drone, which was flew by the guys from uh, our brigade when we were together uh, near uh, Svetlodarsk, it's uh, in Donetsk Oblast, uh, they jumped their UAV, so it landed. The autopilot landed the UAV, but uh, not on our territory, but on theirs. So I used my drone because uh, I was nearby, and I I found the direct location of the drone which uh, which was jammed. And at night, I took uh, two guys 
from my platoon. And um, when I knew the coordinates, I went just <laughs> under the night cover to get it back. It was, you know, risky stuff. Now I, now I consider <laughs> that wasn't like the best decision I took, but proven to be okay. Because the, the drone had the uh, really important information. Uh, so we should, uh, we need to retrieve it. In 2015, our drones lacked inertial system. You know, this, the autopilot, which could uh, turn it back when the, there is no satellites, uh, no satellite signal. So the, the drones used pretty basic uh, uh, autopilot, which couldn't uh, uh, get you back. So the drone either landed or just crashed when there were no satellites to get orientation. Uh, so Russians uh, really um, have the equipment which could jam, because uh, the proxy proxy forces don't have such sophisticated equipment to be able to, to jam the GPS signal. Warfighters and leaders on the modern battlefield have to operate in a complex information environment that is heavily weaponized by their adversaries. State and non-state actors will employ influence in information operations against U.S. forces, allies, and local populations to dominate the information space. Certainly, I think in some of the major battles, like I, I interviewed soldiers from Debaltseva, and they were saying that before the Russians actually conducted like the major offensive, they were all getting cell phone messages like, you know, you're all going to die. Your commanders betrayed you. It was, you know, it's the equivalent of like dropping leaflets over your enemies in other wars, right? It's psychological warfare just done with modern tools. In a lot of ways, you could say that a lot of the aspects of air power for which it was originally conceived have been replaced by these modern electronic tools, whether it's taking out infrastructure, degrading morale, interfering into command and control process. I mean, Russia is able to do a lot of that now with purely electronic means. There were definitely instances where people's families were being targeted too. They were getting death threats, things like that. Um, a lot of that, I think, is a little bit specific to Ukraine because a lot of the adversarial soldiers they face are people they conceivably could have known before the war. So we got these messages saying like something like the Ukrainian soldiers go home or something, you are killing peaceful Donbass population or something like that. Really, really stupid stuff. Uh, no, there, it wasn't effective, but you know, still you you can know that they have the equipment which could pick up the cell uh, numbers, scan and uh, send the messages to get the list list and position even of our cell phones. Because you know, if you have to communicate, you have to communicate in either way possible. When we were close to the front line, sometimes we were receiving these threat messages to our cell phones, like go home and stuff <laughs> in Russian. They created a website. We call it the website of honor, <laughs> where they list you as a intruder to peaceful Donbass uh, country, democracy, people, republic of Donbass, <laughs> and uh, as they call them. Uh, so they list you, they put your photo there. Uh, and uh, sometimes uh, they list like the um, IDs of page IDs of the soldiers. And sometimes uh, my par my parents didn't get any of that, fortunately. But some guys uh, told me that uh, they they were receiving threats through their own pages. And you know, if you see the page and it's not uh, private, if it's uh, the friend list is visible, they could find the person with a similar surname just send something like 
uh, threats or sending photos of dead soldiers and stuff, you know. So that's what that was. Uh, and also the guys who were captured, who became POWs, um, they were, of course, they, their families were getting like uh, ransom uh, demands. There were cases like that. There were some, some disinformation campaigns, the Armenians. Uh, did during the Togus clashes. Like I was standing and I was standing by the headquarters of an artillery uh, squadron, let's say, the translation could be like that. I was sent by WhatsApp, I was sent a video, uh, an audio as a guy, uh, he talks in Azerbaijani and he's like screaming in emotion that, yeah, we are under fire, the shells are blasting, the guys are dead, we all are wounded, etc. And he's just naming the military unit, that squadron that I'm standing at the entrance. And nothing is happening there. And I know, and I don't know that nothing even exploded there during those 10 days. But the whole of Baku was really like negatively excited by those messages. People normally tend to believe in that. Even in America, let's take American troops in Iraq in any, uh, in any destination that they're in. If somebody comes out and drops some piece of conspiracy, chances are higher that people will believe in that. And at least you will have to spend hours and hours explaining the truth. And by this, enemy already achieves certain effect because he distracts you institutionally in human resources, your time, effort, etc. That was an experience. Uh, and I think the best thing you could do, bearing in mind the shortage of time, was just don't bother and cut it. And uh, that's a perfect decision to take under control the social networks. On top of the drones, there was a tremendous, probably greater than tremendous amount of information warfare between both nations directed at each other and directed at the world. Neighbors, diasporas, multiple information targets that both nations were targeting. If you look in the in the news of both nations, like on their both English and, and native language sites, both nations' populations thought they were winning. Videos with some grain of truth to them, showing battle damage done by one side or the other, were prolific on both sides and shared throughout both countries, both on, again, on cell phone or watch parties. Uh, that sort of thing's going to be background noise in future war, and, and, and we need to figure out how to counter it because it's going to be there. Our opponent is going to think that they're in the right and that they're winning, and we've got to figure out how to deal with it. State actors, especially the U.S.'s key adversaries, are equipped with increasingly sophisticated technology in weaponry, communications, logistics, and even decision-making that will challenge U.S. dominance on the ground. Additionally, the barrier to entry for many of these technologies has been lowered significantly for state-sponsored proxy forces and violent non-state actors. The use of such highly effective and lethal systems has caused levels of physical destruction and loss of life in recent global conflicts that U.S. forces have not experienced since Korea or Vietnam. The Ukrainians have more success combating some of the larger Russian drones, which are used, like the Orlan drones. But when the Russians use like a little drone you can buy from Best Buy and attach a hand grenade to it, that's really hard for the Ukrainians to defend against because their radars don't pick it up. It's really hard to to shoot it down with a, a gun or to even aim an electronic warfare weapon at that, that drone is much more difficult because they're much harder to detect. And so I think that those small drones are something that makes the hair in the back of your neck rise when you're out there. I know there's sometimes, you know, my background as a pilot, I was 
very conscious of what the, those images look like from the other side when you're looking at a you know a thermal image or something from the air. But I was always very wary, like you know, if you don't want to gather in groups, you don't want to linger outside, you certainly don't want to advertise your position, things like that. And so I think those those minor behavior attributes are things that the Ukrainians have adapted more recently. Uh, as far as being sort of drone conscious is what I would say. You know, they have to be able to understand that they are probably being, being watched by a drone overhead. So their protocol is if, if they do detect a drone, they have like drone alerts they go under where they like rapidly conceal their, their positions with camouflage. Um, they'll go underground in their trenches or in their underground forts, and then they'll employ certain like electronic warfare uh, weapons to that area. And they have like these roaming teams that will try and go out there and respond to specific locations where they detected um, a drone threat. Also, several times a day, they have EOD teams, which patrol up and down the front lines. Another tactic of the Russians lately has been to use drones as well as mortars to deploy POM2 landmines over no man's land. So they'll just use drones to drop landmines and also firing them occasionally with mortars. And so it's a sort of a discreet way of mining <laughs> the Ukrainian side of the line. And that's probably, I'd say, behind drones and snipers, the other major casualty causing event right now are landmines, IEDs, things like that. Now it's situation it's better. It's not it's not excellent, but it's not you, you can't compare it uh with the things which were like in 2014 and 2016. Now we have Bayraktar drone from Turkey. Yeah, so, so that's a major step because they proved really to be really effective in, um, you know, Armenia and uh, Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan used them really effectively. Their their main uh, crucial point for for using Bayraktar was that were they were really hard to detect and to shoot down with uh, Bakhtilars. And with anti-aircraft missiles, which were available, so Russians pretty much operate the same uh, systems as they supplied to Armenia. So Bayraktars could really help in case the tensions start increasing, as we see now. The Russians gathered, according to the estimates, like to 120 to 170 personnel, a thousand of personnel in near our borders. It's there, um, and comparing to the last year's activities, which were mostly like pressing on the state, uh, this time they have uh, not only the battalion groups and stuff, they have uh, hospitals, uh, supply uh, vehicles, the fuel trucks and stuff. So it's, it, there's some major difference between the previous years comparing to this year. So they now they have those uh, supply chains. You can most likely know that that hidden infiltration force was covered by aerial, um, at least aerial observation, allowing them to infiltrate that we might not have had years in the past, right? As an old soldier, I might not have had a, uh, a what we call a ranger buddy in the sky, uh, maintaining persistent vision on the route I was taking and guiding me uh, over long distances to avoid uh, any possible contact. But I do think that both sides had to look up, unlike wasn't required in, in old wars where you might obtain air supremacy or air superiority, give it whichever term you want. Now, I, there's some really strong reporting about Azerbaijan fear of what's above and not knowing if it's yours or the enemy's. 
While technology has advanced over time and impacted the character of warfare, certain competitions like hiders versus finders and strikers versus shielders persist in modern ground conflict. Modern and future forces will also need to be capable of accomplishing enduring missions and warfighting functions that have been prevalent in conflicts over the last century. The old rules still apply. Infantry is going to have to clear complex, and I mean mountainous or urban terrain. We saw that in the, in the Nagorno-Karabakh region. You know, if you look at the at the map, you know, Nagorno-Karabakh is exceptionally complex terrain. It's not, you know, like Nepal, but it's it's some pretty tough terrain. South of there, mostly flat, but that Nagorno-Karabakh region has some deep valleys and high ridges, much like East Afghanistan. And you're going to have to have infantry to clear it. We we saw it on YouTube and Vimeo. You, you can look at the videos. Tanks or infantry with anti-tank weapons are likely going to still have to kill tanks. So we all talk about this, basically the A2AD fight. That was there. Uh, it was huge. And it was still a combination of old school stuff and new school stuff. I mean, you've seen the reporting of the biplanes. And this is the old school individual level uh adaptations that we as a, as an old soldier you see happening um I, I don't know if that was planned or somebody just made a decision to oh i can take a biplane and make it a remote control and fool the the enemy's sophisticated systems to make them you know basically reveal themselves and then call in something more lethal this was a a major brigade plus joint special operations mission for a conventional goal uh this was a it was a conventional attack uh, executed by commandos, not a mixture of regular infantry forces. Obviously, it's sort of a, a cliche term for the United States military, but fighting for hearts and minds is sort of the overall objective, I think, for the Ukrainian military now in order to have a realistic chance of success in this war is that they have to convince the people living in the occupied territories that their future is better with Ukraine uh, than to continue on as a as a breakaway republic. But without a doubt, though, you know, I think that over time, Russia's propaganda has come up against sort of the litmus test of reality, too, in the Donbass, because, you know, life goes on even in a war zone. And I visited one crossing point where civilians who live in these occupied territories, old civilians who are still crossing into Ukrainian controlled territory to collect their pensions. My wife's one of my wife's friends recently visited her family who lives in the occupied portion of the Donbass when her, her relative died. She went to the funeral and she actually crossed the front lines, went to visit her family and came back. And so I think the people behind the front lines living on this Russian cloud of propaganda, over time, they're getting these pieces of evidence that what they've been told is a lie. And I think that slowly erodes uh, Russia's control over these people's outlooks and mindsets. And that's one of the realizations, too, of this battle that I, I discovered was just a pure mixture of old and new. So old weapons on the ground, very basic infantry tactics, combined arms maneuver, and the new, right? New types of technologies, new uh, assets. Uh, you can see it all in this war. I think it's almost been underdiscovered on, especially if we talk about convergence and it all com compressing and converging uh, at the point of need, this war, you see it all happening. 
Wars throughout time are unique in their character, geography, and scale. However, there are enduring skills and character traits in soldiers and leaders that are critical to successful warfighting and command. Conversely, there are emerging technologies and trends impacting the modern and future battlefield that will require unique skills and attributes not traditionally emphasized in the military. So my name is Jim Greer. I'm a professor at the U.S. Army School of Advanced Military Studies, also a retired Army colonel, specifically in the armor branch. And at SAMS, while I teach primarily the operational art, I am the lead for our futures effort. Our organizations are from a dot mil PF perspective are gonna change very, very rapidly. And so that's gonna require transformational leadership because in order to employ these new systems that we will be receiving often or that change or that have new versions, we are going to have to first transform ourselves as leaders to be the leader that the new organization needs. Secondly, the leaders are going to have to transform their personnel, their teams, so that they can employ all of these new systems and capabilities. And then they're going to have to transform their organization because the tactics are changing, the staff processes are changing, the operations are changing, the integration is changing. And so transformational leadership of yourself, your teams, and your organization is going to be absolutely critical. And that's a behavior that we are going to have to develop systematically and across the force, again, regardless of what warfighting function you're in or what echelon you're located at. Leaders should be the one who can be trusted because trust is uh, more crucial than having sophisticated equipment, than having uh, even sometimes even having uh, lots of munition. If you trust the person who leads you, that is a crucial thing. In Ukraine, for instance, uh, we had the uh, Cossacks, which were like uh, Ukrainian warriors 400 years ago. They uh, had this tradition of uh, electing the leader. So in Ukrainian, uh, modern Ukrainian army, uh, leader is uh, uh, really should be a person whom people trust. In, in at war, it uh, played sometimes. Sometimes even the, there was the cases when. Uh, platoons or uh, companies, uh, they asked their leader to be changed. When, they, when the leader showed some incompetence or inability to lead into uh, battle. The figure of officer losses, commanders killed in action, is over 13%. It's quite a high figure. For example, in the Soviet Union during the Second World War, uh, it was between 7 and 8%, and it was quite high. There is a new generation of officers in this country. These are people who have passed on the one side the something which is like Soviet, but on the other side, this is the generation which uh, was sent to Turkey, to NATO schools, to Romania, to Poland, to the United States, to all those countries in early 90s, mid 90s. And now they are between 40 and 50 years old and they're colonels. Some of them are generals, brigade commanders. And these are the people who conducted this war, in fact. These officers, one of the most critical features is this, you know, I don't know if it's good or bad. As a Bajani officer in a situation where when he cannot fully share the risk, he will always opt to do something himself and to be in the front 
rather than to witness the failure and to stay, to stay alive. So we've seen, uh, on the other side, we've seen scenes and their video footages and rec records of enormous uh, emotional strengths. When you see as a task force enters the enemy position and you see the commander, he's a major, he's killed. And the deputy, who was lieutenant, quite young, he takes the command and he continues the fighting. He organized the people. He calls the alerts to paramedics, he, the first aid, etc. take away the corpses. It is an army which is not disintegrated when the commander is killed. This is one of the most serious achievements. The element of individual soldier actions, it's, he sent me some videos that show like the commander being shot. Uh, and, and the next guy standing up and, and crossing the danger area to get basically the session of command in, that, in their professional forces, uh, that individual soldier capability of being able to step up to the next level, it ain't going away. And it's, it's the heart of, I think, the U.S. military, right, is our leaders uh, at all levels and our, our non-commissioned officers. So that was an officer that was shot and a sergeant. And he said he saw it multiple times. There just had to be one really bad video of where the officer gets killed and the NCO immediately steps up, crosses the danger area to, to retrieve that person uh, and basically continues the mission. Uh, he, he, as a kind of a journalist, thought that was amazing. It's amazing to me too, but it's also why we train our soldiers so hard is that we know that's a requirement of war and our strength is that individual soldier capability. Uh, coding is going to be a base skill for everyone and it doesn't matter what rank you are, it doesn't matter what MOS you are, it doesn't matter if you're an officer, an NCO, a warrant, or a civilian, we are all going to have to be able to code. If for no other reason, because we're going to have to understand the effects of changes in codes and what can be accomplished through coding and what are the limitations of coding. And so again, you see out in the force units and organizations that are beginning to take advantage of Coursera courses or other online capabilities or local community colleges or whatever to begin to develop the skills necessary for coding. And the earlier we begin to develop that capability, the better. Now, again, this is an area where the good news is, is that many of those that we recruit already have some experience coding because they're doing it in high school or earlier, and it's becoming more and more prevalent. Soldiers and leaders in future ground combat will need to be critical thinkers, highly aware and involved in the information, cyber, and electromagnetic environments, and capable of making time and mission critical decisions on a highly contested and dispersed battlefield. These increasing demands on warfighters and their commanders will necessitate new and revamped training and education systems and approaches. In the knowledge piece, uh, just basic understandings of artificial intelligence, the cloud, data, uh, algorithms, network systems, a, a better understanding of all of those is necessary. And this is not just a uh, institutional PME, challenge. It's also an operational challenge. And so you see 18th Airborne Corps right now has a very strong initiative to try to educate soldiers and leaders on AI, on the cloud, uh, on data, so that they can better integrate with the systems that they are bringing into the force. So this knowledge component is largely centered around network systems, 
the components to that, and then more broadly, uh, how data is moved, how it is integrated, how it is exploited in order to make decisions. I mean, one thing that really struck me, and I think it's a lost art in American society, but how handy the soldiers were, right? Like at a frontline position there in Marinka, they didn't have generators. So some, some dude, some soldier who knew how to do it, climbed up a power line, jury-rigged this electrical cord and provided power to the unit. Uh, their ability to go out and hunt and fish in some cases to get food, their ability to fix engines, their ability to operate machinery in cold weather, their ability to dress appropriately in cold weather, to eat appropriately, just all these little things that I think maybe you learn in Boy Scouts or something, you know, they were prepared when the war started to go out there and fight this way. And I think that that extends not just to, you know, simple mechanics and whatnot, but also the, the IT edge too, their ability to take a, an iPad and turn it into a weapon of war or to convert, you know, a drone you can buy online into a lethal weapon of war. And I think that that handiness, that really struck me. And I, I, I you know, as much as I revere my own country's culture, I often kind of turned my head and was like, I wonder if the average American man or woman would have that handiness or that background to be able to do these things. And so I think that that would be certainly something that maybe was something for the United States to consider too, is just to have all these basic skill sets available so that if you are living off the land or if you are on the fly trying to innovate some solution, you have that sort of reservoir of practical knowledge available within your within your units we need to teach our soldiers our soldiers not just our leaders about operating in the electromagnetic spectrum how they look in it and why they look that way and how to reduce their signature we need to teach them not just opsec from slides we need to educate our very smart very well trained soldiers and leaders on masking their movement masking their food and water points, masking their sleeping areas, masking the fuel point. They have got to think about being under observation at all times. It only takes one or two times before people figure out where you're at uh, and, and draw a pattern, and then you're under fire, under indirect fire or under fire from an unmanned system or under direct fire. And one of the things that we're particularly worried about is cognitive overload. How does the future leader just be able to think through and work through all of that at increasingly greater speeds? Because the speed at which decisions are going to have to be made is also increasing because there are more decisions, many of which are driven by autonomous or semi-autonomous systems, uh, which are not limited by the speed at which a human processes information. And so we have to figure out what the cognitive overload point is first, and then how do we train, educate, develop in order to be able to address that. And I think right now that's one of the significant gaps that we are trying to address in terms of our design of our education. I want 100 people of character who want to be part of something bigger than themselves. Our NCOs can train the rest of it. Our NCOs can train soldiers how to be resilient, and they can teach technical skills. Basic combat training and advanced individual training, AIT, can educate how to function in a violent, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous environment. You give me 100 people of character, 
want to be part of something bigger than themselves, I'll do whatever the Army needs. As we've heard from soldiers on the ground, journalists at the front lines, and experts studying the battles, while war is enduring, warfare is dynamic. Technology is crucial and advances rapidly, oftentimes outpacing education, training, and policy, while a mix of new as well as timeless tactics underpinned by strong leadership proves decisive. Stay tuned to Mad Scientist as we continue to explore the operational environment on The Convergence.